ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, Selena Green with you today. I'll take you over to the border of South Australia and New South Wales in a moment where the passing storm has dumped rain, it's taken out power and started fires as well. Fingers crossed there's a few you know, bulls and that we rely on pretty well for stock water, you know. That's been a bit of a headache. I'll go around today and check and make sure they're right and probably take a generator with me and pump a bit of water for a while. Speaking of water, we got some uh, great rainfall figures through yesterday. Of course, Mother Nature, she can be a bit fickle depending on where you are, as to what you got, whether you welcome it or not. But keep those uh, coming today. I'd love to know if you did get some rain and how much. My talkback number, 1300 891 or the text line 0467 991. But first today, grain producers could soon be paying a higher levy and one that's based on the value of the crops they grow rather than cents per tonne. This reform is being proposed by the state's peak industry body for grain to make the system more equitable. The big differences in what farmers are paid per tonne for wheat and barley compared to canola, pulses and legumes. Well, the funds collected go towards the Grain Industry Fund and the Grains Industry Research and Development Fund. That's through the South Australian Grains Industry Trust, or SAGIT, Saget. Grain Producers South Australia Chair John Gladigo told Eliza Berlage the type of crops grown has changed a lot in the last decade. As our industry has now changed significantly, we're now growing much more higher value uh, type, type of crops and of course that's a result of the, the changes in the industry, mainly through the research and development that, that we've done uh, and, and through uh, you know, the, the amazing changes in growth in our industry over time. Um, and so as a result of that, even here in the Northern Valley, uh, where we never would have thought of it before, we're now growing um, you know, lentils and and chickpeas and, and, and other high-value crops. And so um, it means that um, the, the levies being volume-based, that uh, you know, a lentil grower is paying 900 to a sorry, he's receiving $900 to $1,000 a tonne for their, their grain, is um, you know, paying the same amount per tonne as a barley grower. He might be getting you know, 250 to $300 a tonne. So the first part of this is actually about making it a, a more equitable system um, that is a fit for purpose for our industry where it is today uh, and where it's going forward. The second part um, to it is actually to uh, to have a incremental increase in the amount of funds that we collected. There hasn't been a change to the rate uh, in the last um, 12 years, um, so we're basically collecting the same amount now uh, as what we were 12 years ago. And of course, you know, the world has changed a lot since then, and, and our role especially in research and, and, and that's uh, even more so probably in, in advocacy and, and what we need to be doing going forward is, is, is even more important and we need to um, have a, a, a positive way to be able to fund that. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's been lots of changes in the industry and of course as we know the price of just about everything's been going up and uh, sure. yeah, research can be quite expensive. You know, So what sort of uh, things would you like to see uh, this change and, and reform um, be able to assist? Like, what, what makes it so important? There are the two funds, and so certainly in, in research, it, it allows us to, um, you know, the, the more funds that we have in there, it allows us to leverage even more funds 
to, to be used on South Australian-based type of projects. Um, certainly through SAGET, they, they look to, to, uh, to, to leverage funds through the GRDC to, to do even bigger projects. And so I guess the more funds that we have, the more it gives us the opportunity to do that. Um, now, certainly, as I mentioned before, that, you know, we're now growing, um, you know, lentils in the, in the Northern Valley, which no one ever would have thought possible. And, and a lot of that work was done because of the work of SAGET um, through that uh, GIRDF. Um, which allowed you know, specific research to be done in some of the more marginal areas, which you know, which is just fantastic, and we want more opportunity to do that. From an advocacy level, you know, there's never been you know bigger issues in, in our industry, and and we need to be. I uh, would have a you know we have growers calling on us to, you know to make a stronger stand to 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 be able to take you know stronger positions on things, and you know we've we've certainly seen the work that um, GPSA has done in the last um, you know few months on. Um, on the harvest code, you know, for example, the harvest fire code, and 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 looking to to keep that um, something which allows farmers to keep in paddock harvesting and and in control of their own destiny uh, in, in many ways. Um, we're just going into a period right now where we've had you know, significant rainfall uh, across the state, um, especially on the Air Peninsula and and the mid north, but but here in in the in the Mallee as well. And uh, harvest is, is finishing earlier than normal, and so everyone's now jumping on their sprayers and madly going spraying to get um, um, some weeds under control so we can maximise that moisture going into next year. But with that comes uh, you know, the, the significant risk of spray drift um, through inversions um, and uh, off-target damage. And, and uh, you know, we, as an industry, need to be absolutely at the forefront of that. And uh, but to do that, we need to have boots on the ground. We need to have campaigns um, that are happening. We need to be talking to growers. We need to be lobbying governments so that um, you know we can not only look after our industry and keep it safe, but also the industries that surround us. So there's never been a more important time. And have you had much feedback from growers um, about this proposal? Look, I think as a, as a general rule, um, growers have been been really supportive. Um, I think they they can see the value that that both um, GPSA and and, and SAGET, you know, bring to their industry. And uh, none of us want to be paying levies, levies on the grain ground myself. You know, we, we're very, very aware that the money comes out of uh, all of our back pockets and it could be used on, on other things. So, um, you know, certainly we as a board are, are very, very mindful that, that it is grower dollars and we need to, to be spending, uh, getting maximum value for every dollar that we um, that we do spend. But, you know, in, in talking to growers, I, I think, uh, you know, they, they are actually very proud of the scheme that we have here in South Australia that allows us to be in control of our own destiny and not having to go you know, cap in hand looking for sponsors and 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 uh, to other organisations and even government for, for money where in, in some ways your hands are tied then with with how you use those. I mean we are you know quite fiercely independent because um, you know it is it is representing growers using growers funds and I think that's that's something that's that's really really important for us going forward. As grain producers, South Australia Chair John Gladigo speaking there with Eliza Berlage. If you want to learn more about these proposed levy changes, you can attend a webinar that's being held on Monday the 18th of December, so next Monday at 2.30pm. Details will be sent out to growers or they can be found on the Grain Producers website. Submissions on the change are due by February with a proposal that be then submitted to the State Primary Industries Minister to consider amending the legislation. What do you think of the idea? Uh, that talkback number again, one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or the text line 0467 922891. Jerry has t- topped onto that text line to say, Hi, Selena, 20.5 millimetres of rain in Narracourt since Friday night. 
night. Well, let's stay in the southeast then where Jerry is because uh, while many in the upper southeast were able to finish off harvest before that rain came in this week, how did the crops still out in the field handle the weather? Well, agronomist with Cox Rural Keith, Scott Hutchings, says the specialty crops will be most impacted by the weather at this stage. He says the overall season has been around about average. We have been progressing really quite well until this weekend. We missed out on the rains a couple of weeks ago and didn't have high amount of rain of that, which we only had a short spot for that. But yeah, in the local area, we've Probably most of the area has received somewhere between 30 to 50 mils out of the, out of the weekend. So, yeah, that'll, that'll put a bit of a, a halt to harvest and we'll potentially not shower activity the next three or four days. So that will certainly slow down harvest. Some of our bigger producers with a couple of harvesters have managed to finish the bulk of their main harvest and only have a few specialty crops left. A few of the other producers have probably, I'd say as general rule across the district, we've probably got about 20% of harvest left to go across the board. Yeah, just a little, some later wheat and lupins and, and some of the kind of arrowleaf clover crops are still to go. So yeah, this, this rain will obviously affect the, the quality of those crops. And particularly if we, we probably, the wind is welcome today to dry out the crops, but we're hoping we don't see a lot more rain. On the positive side, our irrigated loosen, a lot of that is pre-flowering, so the rain will certainly help and take a bit of pressure off that for irrigation. Also help our dry land loosen crops and provide a bit more feed in, in a year that's been like we're starting to look a bit tighter and it'll mean that a lot of producers can get another rotation around their dry land loosen. So how's the quality of harvest been up until this weekend? Yeah, so we've, we've had a bit of a mixed bag because of the you know really wet start and then a, a, a quite a dry finish to the growing season. So what we've found a real strong correlation between moisture holding capacity of soils, those soils that have kind of had some soil amelioration and, and carry a reasonable clay content and have a depth of soil have been kind of above average yields, above average long-term yields, whereas a lot of our shallower soils, soils over limestone that haven't got a, a, a big um, depth of soil holding or soil moisture holding capacity, they've been back towards a, a bit more average, like probably average slightly below long-term averages maybe. And then we've also seen on our sandier soils and some of those soils that haven't held as much moisture, we're also seeing a little bit of frost effect. So a good cropping country with good moisture holding capacity, we've, we've seen some really quite good yields. But I'd say as a, as a general rule, canola would have ranged from 1.7 on our shallow soils and, and less suited soils up to nearly 3.5 tonne on the better yielding country. You know, barley's been a mixed bag um, going from frosted areas a tonne and a half with, and then a lot of dry lands between 4 to 5 tonne on the better cropping soils and some of the irrigation pushing up towards 7 to 8 tonne a hectare. And, yeah, wheat's at the early stages, but a lot of lot of wheat in that kind of 3.5 to kind of 4.5 to 5 tonne range at this stage. Uh, beans have probably been... They didn't enjoy the, the uh, dry finish much, and, yeah, they've gone from 1.5, you know, and at the bottom end, more averages around low, low to mid twos. And some of the more exceptional paddocks have been up to, you know, three and a half tonne a hectare. So not, you know, a record year by any means, but considering some of the tougher yep. weather conditions, do you think farmers are mostly pretty happy with that? Yeah, I think it's it's very hard to, you know, perception after we've come off one of our best years ever the year before. It's always hard to be excited when, when you're 
back to more average long-term yields, but I would say this year has been, you know, uh, probably more of a long-term average sort of yielding year. You know, we've certainly made some advances in the yields we're getting out of crops over the last four or five years, but yeah, we've just, you know, we're kind of a good, you know, 20 or 30% down on last year. So, but, you know, acceptable, but there's been obviously some higher input costs over the last 12 months, that as well as poorer livestock prices. So, and increasing interest rates, so they've all kind of, yeah, you know, it's just been sort of an average average finish to harvest. That's agronomist with Cox Rural, Keith Scott Hutchings, and he was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. It's 17 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, extreme weather conditions brought bushfires and storms to the far west of New South Wales over the weekend. Grazier from Kilumbra Station, Ross Gates, witnessed the bushfire from his helicopter in the state's north. And it was the Gates family's other property, Burndu Station, 70 kilometres southeast of Wilcannia, that bared the brunt of the inferno. He spoke to Lily McCure about the conditions and his perspective from the sky. Yeah, neighbours let us know there was smoke over there because it's... It'd be 50 k's from where I live, where the fire was. From the time they seen the smoke, the time we got there, it was probably four or 500 acres or something. And then in the next hour, it would have burned another 1,000, 1,500 acres. Like, it moved. Yeah, for bluebush, like, normally that bluebush country doesn't burn that hot. Like, it burnt everything. Like, burnt all the trees, burnt the bluebush, burnt... Yeah, like, it was a really hot fire. Yeah. What were the conditions like on the day? Windy. Windy and hot. I can't remember. I think it was 40-something, 40 42 or 44 or something and probably 30 k an hour winds or something like that. Windy enough, yeah. Did you see it coming? No. Nah, where I live to where it is, I hit a fair way away. And then so I said the neighbours let us know and then by the time I actually flew over there and I just spent the next couple of hours, I just spent two hours in the air pretty much just directing the graders and the firefighting units and the people around on the ground to, to where we had to grade and... And we're, yeah, just trying to make sure no one was going to get stuck in, in behind the fire, pretty much. Yeah, in between a fence and a fire or something, yeah. So when you heard about the fire, did you, you hopped in your helicopter to go and see it from above? Yeah. What did it look like up there? It's pretty wild. I don't know, just lots of smoke and flames. Yeah, it was pretty unreal, actually. The probably 40-foot flames. Like when, it was really, when it was really going, like it was probably 40-foot flames, you would have would have engulfed most things, yeah. Was it threatening any sort of infrastructure and homes? No, it was all pretty good. Yeah, we would have. Oh, there was a crutching shed there a little bit away from it, probably another couple of k's from it. But I guess if, yeah, if we didn't get that, yeah, around that crutching shed would have been in good trouble. Yeah. How did it get put out? It was about two mil rain. It was all just, just enough to wet the grass and, yeah, and it was just enough to stop it. Would you sort of expect those conditions at this time of the year? No. Really? Yeah, like it was a lightning strike that would have started and it was just a random storm that popped up like it was and right on the edge of this storm, like just enough to put it all out. They're forecasting some pretty hot weather this summer. Are you thinking that you might see some similar like events? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, you keep getting these dry storms around the place. It wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if we get more of it this year. Yeah, still got plenty to burn there. Like it'll, it'll take a bit of getting under control if it gets away. Ross Gates there, Grazier, for Keelumbara Station, speaking with Lily McCure. It's 20 minutes past 12. Well, some residents in the Ivanhoe area in the far west of New South Wales are still without power. 
more than 30 hours after major storms in the region. Power provider Essential Energy says damage to the electricity network, including three power poles brought down during the storm and more than 1.5 kilometres of damaged power lines. Mark Huntley is from Strathavon Station, 50 kilometres southeast of Ivanhoe. He's burned out one generator already and moved his children to sleep in a caravan to keep them cool. Been back here, uh, Hilston Way, that, that, that the issue's been. We sort of didn't get too much rain in it here. Uh, the, what was that? Uh, Monday night, I think. Monday was a uh, sort of build up into the east there and coming our way. But, it, yeah, we missed the, the rain side of things pretty well. But um, definitely done damage. I think it's put power out. I think as far as I know, Griffith and uh, some are parts of Leeton are out as well. Wow. So it's covering a fairly big area. That's a massive area, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I think there's over 400 or 500 customers or whatever it is out, out around yeah, most of that area, you know. And, and Mark, uh, so you're on mains power, are you, normally, at the property? Yes, yeah, yep. Yep, no, we're on mains. It's, um, well, well, one bonus with it, we haven't lost phone service this time. We usually lose phone service when we when we have no power, and yeah, this time we haven't lost it, which is which is a bonus, I suppose. Now, uh, most properties have got a generator or two. Is that what you're running at the moment? Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of generators. The main one I had, it burned out on me, and um, yeah, just going back to a couple of smaller ones, and we're actually camping in the caravan, to, so we've got a bit of air conditioning for the kids to camp pretty comfortably at night, you know, make mm. it a bit easier. Yeah, and enough there to keep your essentials, uh, what, you got a fridge running as well? Yeah, yep, keeping the fridges. That's what I've got the other generator going, running fridges and freezers and and cool rooms, so everything's still keeping. It's going to be a bit of an issue. Uh, my mother is oh, about 15 k's east over there. She's had a bit of trouble with it, her generator, which you know, usually things go wrong, but she's been sort of without power for the last, well, obviously, she hadn't had anything for the last 12 or 14 hours because we're trying to fix it. But anyway, we're working on that. Have you heard anything from Essential Energy? Uh, I got a text message last night at... Oh, I reckon about eight o'clock to say it'll be on later, late this afternoon, sometime. So there must have been a fairly uh, fair bit of damage there. There's three or four poles down somewhere, and yeah, they had to do a fair bit of work. You mentioned there you missed out on that rain, but other than that, how's your property looking? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, our country here, where we are at Moscow, looks really good. We can't complain with it uh, here. We've probably had uh, for November I think we had nearly four inches so it's been good everything's nice and green but I'll tell you what this this week's really you can notice the difference it's how it's dried it out you know that wind and the heat's definitely dried the country up. That's Mark Huntley there from Strathavon Station, 50 kilometres southeast of Ivanhoe, speaking there to Andrew Schmidt. Uh, so the ABC did reach out to a, uh, the company Essential Energy and a spokesperson told us that the Essential Energy crews worked throughout yesterday to carry out repairs to the network in the Ivanhoe area. The storms caused significant damage to the network, including three fallen power poles, uh, associated network components and more than 1.5 kilometres of damaged power lines. Brought in some additional crews from Hay, Griffith and Condoblin. They're being brought in to assist with the repairs and restoration. Uh, The Ivanhoe Township is being supplied power via a generator. That's been online since yesterday. Uh, At last check-in, we didn't have an estimated time for restoration. They do expect power to be restored to those remaining customers' 
today, hopefully around now. Uh, Essential Energy did thank its customers for their understanding and patience as their crews are working quickly as safety allows to restore power. 24 minutes past 12. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Jenny Horvat, hello. Good afternoon, Selena. Uh, we're still having some rumbles of thunder and things around the place today. Is it starting to settle at all? Yeah, look, it's still still pretty active today, but it should start to settle um, as we head into tomorrow. So we've still got our low pressure system out over the bite and we've got an associated broad level, um, broad area of low pressure associated with that, which move, which is running sort of across our central districts and moving towards the southeast. So currently we are seeing quite a bit of thunderstorm activity. Most of that is... Um, pretty much around um, sort of the central parts, um, Kangaroo Island and over over water at the moment. It's been quite active um, earlier this morning. That was up in the sort of the northeast pastoral district, Flinders and mid-north, but we do have this system moving south southeastward so we will start to see some of that thunderstorm activity moving into the southeastern districts as we head into this afternoon and evening and we will be watching those um, storms for severity as well so we could be seeing some um, isolated heavier falls embedded within those storms especially around our southeastern districts as we head into the later part of today couldn't rule out some um, damaging wind gusts as well with those storms so a bit of a, a watch this space especially you know, if you are in the southeast and the, and the Murray lands for this afternoon so keep an eye out on the on the website for any warnings that may be issued during the later part of today but we will be seeing this low pressure system and associated trough continue to move eastward so we are expecting that system to be moving into the eastern states as we head on into tomorrow so we've got like I said we've got that low pressure system sitting over the bite at the moment slowly going to be moving south of the state um, on Wednesday and it should by tomorrow um, evening be situated to the west of Tasmania and the trough broadly associated with that by tomorrow evening over the over the eastern states. So still expecting to potentially be seeing some showers and even some thunderstorm activity over the eastern border districts um, overnight and first thing on Wednesday. Could see a little bit more of that thunderstorm development still hanging around Wednesday afternoon across our southeastern districts before it really all contracts up to the very far northeast by Thursday. Bye. By Thursday elsewhere, there's a little bit of a trough coming through, so we could still be seeing some shower activity, especially across the southern agricultural area, and with a high-pressure system south of WA pushing a ridge of high pressure over us. So keeping those temperatures milder as we head into the end of the week, especially on the southern half of the state, and still pushing a little bit of moisture in that westerly flow um, as we head into the end of the, into the weekend there. So again, still possibly seeing some isolated showers not too much in them as we head into the later part of the the week um across the southern agricultural area things really mostly dry by the time we head into into saturday but as we roll on into sunday we'll maybe start to see our next system pushing some thunderstorms into the far west of the of the state generally the flow will be tending more northerly on sunday so we'll see those temperatures rising again and then early next week we'll have our next system moving through I guess the other thing of note for tomorrow, we're still seeing a bit of warmth on the eastern border there, so especially around the Riverland and the Murray lands with a bit of um, wind pushing up in the northwesterlies ahead of that westerly change, we could be seeing some elevated fire dangers. So um, 
keep note of the forecast for this afternoon when that comes out as well because we haven't seen a lot of rainfall in that area and it has been very warm and we've still got a bit of warmth there before we get that westerly change pushing through. So just having a look at some of the cumulative rainfall totals that we can expect up until the end of Saturday with a lot of that, I guess, falling um, for today with the thunderstorms and first thing on the Wednesday through there and then becoming less likely as we head into the later part of the week. So across our agricultural areas, we are looking broadly at one to five millimetres as well as parts of the West Coast District and south of the pastoral districts picking up a little bit of that rainfall as well. But across our central and southeastern districts, more likely to be seeing totals of 5 to 15 millimetres. And then with those local higher falls with thunderstorms possible around central and south and central and eastern districts, generally looking maybe pushing up to around 15 to 30 millimetres there, Selena. All right. Thanks for that, Jenny. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. The forecast for the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow uh, for both the upper and western district looking around partly cloudy to mostly sunny conditions. Now there's a medium chance of showers in the southeastern part of the upper western district and for the far eastern parts of the lower western district but a slight chance everywhere else and there is a chance of a thunderstorm as well. Overnight temperatures falling to the low to mid-20s with those daytime temps climbing to the... around 35 to 40 degrees. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. In a moment, you'll hear about some big news out of China overnight and pretty significant impact for our meat processing industry. More on that to come very shortly. And, well, you might be seeing lots of affordable, delicious-looking Australian-grown mangoes on the supermarket shelves at the moment. I'm loving them. Uh, Australians love them, but it turns out the Japanese do as well. And even more varieties of mangoes are now allowed to be exported to that country, which is some very good news for our mango growers here in Australia. Japan is is one of those markets. They look at and consider, like most countries, an export that Australian farmer-grower-produced product is quality-wise the best in the world. It is a good news story, and you'll get it very soon. But first, find out what's making top news stories on this Tuesday with Matt Coleman. Hello. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, just over 9,500 properties are still without power across SA. Showers and thunderstorms are expected for the rest of today, and local heavy falls are possible. The State Emergency Service is also responding to reports of a large number of trees down across the state. The Adelaide Magistrates Court has heard that prosecutors will proceed with two counts of murder against a woman accused of injecting her parents with her insulin. Raylene Polymiatis has faced a charge determination hearing. She's accused of injecting her mother while she was in hospital and her father while he was alone at their Hackham home. And the Liberal Upper House MP Ben Hood says he will not be running for the state seat of MacKillop as he heads out on a listening tour of the electorate with the former federal MP Nicole Flint. Miss Flint has not commented on whether she will contest MacKillop against the now independent MP Nick McBride. She's been spending much of her time at her parents' farm in Cape Jaffa and will join Mr Hood on a series of engagements across the southeast next month. More news at one o'clock.
Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman there with those headlines. Well, yes, in some breaking news overnight, China has relisted three Australian meat plants that were delisted due to COVID-19 trade sanctions, one of them here in South Australia. The Australian Lamb Company, otherwise known as ALC at Colac in Western Victoria, JBS Brooklyn in Melbourne's West and Tees Narracourt here in South Australia, voluntarily stopped sending meat to China back in July 2020, obeying China's protocols in a move replicated by similarly affected meat processors right around the globe. Well, meat industry analyst Simon Quilty has been keeping an eye on this story and he spoke with Jane McNaughton earlier this morning. These were plants that were, you might say, had COVID-related issues at the time of their delisting, with two of them being delisted as far back as mid-2020. And the more recent one, if that's the right expression, was early 2022. In each instance, you know, there was um, either uh, issues of COVID being talked of, or there was COVID present, or they were trying to deal with COVID potentially at the time. But either way, and, and often we were looking at some of the situation happening globally where, dare I say, um, trial by media was happening as well. But these, in particular one or two of these, forfeited their licences voluntarily at the time, um, thinking they were doing the right thing. And here we are three and a half years later now receiving them back. It was very a period of real uncertainty. All product going into China at the time was being tested for COVID um, on meat products because the Chinese believed um, that meat was a carrier of COVID. It isn't, um, and it was proven you know, scientifically, but nonetheless, that was their desire at the time. Do you know what the financial ramifications have been to these businesses of China closing its doors? I, I think in many respects, they've been enormous in the sense of just taking away one of the most important markets. Um, but a lot of these operations have adapted, found new markets, but without doubt, this is welcomed um, by everyone. But for what it's worth, um, you know, China today is the second largest beef market that Australia has. Um, in terms of mutton, it's our number one market taking almost half of our mutton exports. Um, and in terms of lamb, it sits at, at number one as well. So, you know, each of these plants, particularly lamb and mutton, um, out of Brooklyn and out of Colac, are critical because those are small stock plants and uh, those two markets are very important. So just because these companies are now allowed to trade with China, you think they'll go back? Without doubt. I think that, um, you know, in the trading world, you are always looking for, obviously, the best bidder on the day. I think also that all those concerns about COVID, about, you know, the hypersensitive nature in which China was looking at it, when they lifted um, in January this year, the restrictions within China, a lot of those concerns, you might say, have gone. Um, and as a result, you know, we're all looking to China today in a much different light than back then in mid-2020. So, yes, I think they will be shipping back there. And, yes, it's, it's truly welcome. Was there market diversification in the meantime, though? We heard other industries that have been banned by China, for example, wine, were sort of saying we're not going to be so reliant on China anymore. Is that the same with mutton, for example, or any of the meat markets? 
No, I think it's always challenging. Um, you know, often it's spoken of, you know, diversification, without doubt it occurs. But there are certain items that really end up going to certain markets. And a good example is, is flat meat in the mutton and, and lamb sector, that China is a critical part of that, rest and flat. So even though in all the best intentions in the world, but the next alternate market is so less in price that it does truly make a difference. The other area is offals, where China is paying a premium above all other markets. So, you know, it, it really is different items for different markets. Some can be diversified, but in many situations, China is absolutely key when it comes to certain meat items. So why did it take China so long to welcome these companies back? Well, that's really a decision made by China, of course. But I think part of it too is let's think about, you know, the political um, relationship with China and Australia, that it had been truly problematic for a good while. And just until recent times with, you know, Australia has you know, really made a huge effort to try and patch up the differences. And I think that so much of this is about, you know, the work that our government has done. And so full credit to them and the various departments in restoring relations. What will this mean for the domestic market? Well, it helps all, um, you know, markets in the sense that once you create that extra competition, it tends to one, help lift prices, and two, divert product to where it's most needed. And as I said, you know, mutton, for example, China is the number one market, 46%. You know, keep in mind, we've still got seven plants across Australia that haven't got access yet that have also been delisted over the last three and a half years. So from a Victorian point of view, and in particular from a mutton and lamb point of view, this is truly good news. Of those other seven plants, it's really Queensland, of which six of those seven reside, and it's beef that dominates it. So the impact, you know, in terms of domestically and um, export-wise, is slightly different. In Victoria, I think the biggest impact will be felt on mutton and lamb. In Queensland, it will be beef. That's meat industry analyst Simon Quilty there speaking with Jane McNaughton. A number of meat export meat establishments remain suspended with the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries working with China's customs agency to resolve these technical impediments to trade. Now, in a statement issued exclusively to the ABC, Trade Minister John Farrell says this is a positive step towards the stabilisation of Australia's relationship with China. Uh, and the Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, Murray Watt, said this is very welcome news for Australian farmers and meat processors. He says, and I quote, as our busy, biggest trading partner, the normalisation of trade with China has been a win for our agricultural sector. Well, South Australia's uh, Primary Industries Minister, Claire Scriven, said it was a welcome development for the southeast region. And Tees, as we heard in Narrakoi, is one of those impacted abattoirs. 
Yeah, look, it's a really important step forward. Uh, we know that both the Federal Labor Government and our Premier Peter Malinowskis uh, and our State Labor Government have been working hard to try and uh, re-stabilise the relationship with China and this next step is really, really welcome. Uh, it will be uh, certainly very, very helpful for Narracourt uh, and for the Meatworks there uh, and we look forward, hopefully, to further steps forward in other sectors as well. It's been a fairly slow, I guess, drip feed of easing of trade restrictions since the Premier's visit to China. Um, What's the feeling like in the government seeing these small, I guess, steps made very slowly uh, as, you know, a lot of other industries wait for changes? Well, I think steps forward are to be celebrated. Uh, We saw under the previous federal government a huge deterioration of the trade relationship with China, which which hurt our meatworks, it hurt our fishermen, it hurt our timber industry, it hurt so many industries in our state and in our region. So having these positive steps forward uh, is something we really should be celebrating. That is the Primary Industries Minister, Claire Scrivens, speaking a short time ago with Sam Bradbrook. Well, Patrick Hutchison is from the Australian Meat Industry Council. He says the suspension of meatworks has cost the trade hundreds of millions of dollars, and he has welcomed the news they can now resume that trade with China. You know, it's uh, it's been a long haul, and we're certainly uh, by no means over it yet. But it's a it's a good start. What's the value of the lost exports? You think from these three abattoirs? It's often hard to pinpoint, and the reason being is because we are an inverse manufacturer. So we take a whole, we disassemble it, and we sell all the parts. And when we sell all those parts, is that they can go. Uh, you know, one animal can provide. Uh, product to the domestic market. It can go to uh, the US. It can go to uh, to China and all to the Middle East. Conservatively, in 2019, the trade was worth in beef three billion, uh, and beef and lamb uh, was worth three billion. So these players in that market, uh, probably in lamb, were were up there. So their their loss in access they made up in other areas. But certainly their loss in, in, in access probably made up about, you know, roughly across the board, maybe about between 5 to 10% of trade. So, um, And the others that are still remaining uh, probably make up another 25% in that trade. So it is not insubstantial by any stretch of the imagination. A number of Australian abattoirs remain suspended from trade with China. Has the federal government given you any indication that that trade is about to resume? No, they have not. Three and a half years blocked out of the most valuable market for Australian red meat. Is that really an acceptable situation? Look, China undertook this based on their own legislative requirements. This was not an economic uh, sanction. This was a sanction based on technical uh, their own technical programs that they have within China. It came at a time that everybody else was also feeling this uh, these trade sanctions. But it is difficult in our sector and for this issue, it is difficult for us to say that this was part of the overall trade coercion because it was a technical uh, scenario and they actually publish when facilities have failed in technical areas in the past. So we did everything that we could to provide them the evidence. What was the major problem in here was the fact that we then had no dialogue. So when Australia was frozen out of any dialogue, be it with government to government from a ministerial level or from a um, departmental regulator level, 
there was no conversation. So whilst that happens, they're not reviewing anything and any evidence that we provide them. So obviously now they've gone and started that process and now we're here. So has it taken too long? Obviously it has. Obviously the relationship has had the major uh, reaction to it and we're just hoping that now it gives us the opportunity for this to be cleaned up and also reset ourselves to where we were back in 2017 and have a number of others that are still waiting to get their licence to obtain their licence. Patrick Hutchison there from the Australian Meat Industry Council speaking to Kath Sullivan. We are one. ABC Radio. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. We're at 16 minutes to one, and you're with Selena Green. Well, for years now, Australian mangoes have been exported to Japan, but the protocol only allowed certain varieties to be sent there. Well-known varieties such as Calypso and Honey Gold, they were actually blocked from the market. But now that's been changed. And according to Brett Kelly, he's from the Australian Mango Industry Association, it's good news for an export market with plenty of potential. Basically, the uh, protocols have been agreed with export into Japan to allow all varieties. And what that means is that basically any and all varieties of Australian mangoes can now have access into the Japanese market. And Japan, again, is is one of those markets. I've had a bit to do with Japan in, in previous roles, and they look at and consider, like um, most countries in export, that Australian farmer grower produced product is quality-wise the best in the world. So you, you have that opportunity of a, a premium product at a premium price if it's you know, marketed correctly. How big of a market is Japan for Aussie mangoes at the moment, even before this slight change? It's not, it's not a huge market. It's still in that what I, I call growth stage. But this certainly now enables that opportunity for um, you know, a lot of really good professional organisations in Australia to get their uh, varieties into Japan. And are you expecting this to be acted on straight away by Aussie growers? Like, are you expecting, say, the AHA mango to be going to Japan? Well, I think it all takes time. As you know, with these things, it's never, you know, like it doesn't happen overnight. But getting the door open and then getting that knowledge out there to the, you know, the Japanese consumer and, and obviously for uh, farmers in Australia is a great start. So I would think it'll be a slow, steady growth over the next few years. And just on exports in general, there was once a time where the industry was aiming to export 20% of the crop. How is all that going? Well, (laughs) as you know, we went through that amazing situation with COVID and uh, that shut the whole world down. And still now, um, when you do something like that, it takes a fair while to recover, but it is recovering um, and slowly building up again. I think, you know, the, the most important thing, and I've been sort of pushing this point over the last couple of years, is that you know, the three key things for our farmer growers is price, profit, sustainability. So our domestic market, you know, we need to be really focused on our strategies on the front end to get a good return. And then our export markets should really be the cream on top of that. Because again, you've got that, you've got that marketing competitive position of being farmer grower produced. So if we get those channels right, 
we can really grow export. You know, it, it shouldn't be looked at as just another market when you have an oversupply to just dump product into. When a farm is selling mangoes in America for nearly $14 a piece, is that a good profit? Well, I don't know what the uh, the breakdown of, of that is. Obviously, you know, when you hear about a retail price, you, you've got to, you know, obviously take into account the supply chain and what agreements and all the rest of it. But what I, you know, I can say is that when the price is up like that, to me, that's fantastic because it shows again, and, we, and we've seen examples of that in other countries where, you know, due to um, supply issues, uh, the price has been, you know, seven or eight dollars a mango. But what that says to me, and again, at that price, they actually sell, it says that the consumer will pay a fair price for a premium product. And that's what I think we've got to get our head around, is that we've got to be, you know, it's the old saying, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. We've got to get a better position and price so that our, our farmers can, you know, make enough to reinvest in their farm. So I, I think that's a really good uh, outcome that's been achieved. And just finally, Brett Kelly, on the domestic market, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I've uh, crunched the AMIA numbers, and I've got here that in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, Australian growers are going to produce around 1.1 million trays, right? Which is a lot of mango. It is down from 2.4 million trays in the lead up to Christmas last year. Uh, Aussies, Aussies going to have enough mango for Christmas? Absolutely. The, the, key, the key message I can say to you is that, yes, volume is down. Um, B, the quality is excellent. That's the feedback I'm getting from retailers. C, there will be more than enough mangoes for the festive season for the consumers. And D, you know, really importantly is that our farmer growers are going to get, I think, a better price, like a fair price, as opposed to what happened to them last year with the oversupply. So Hmm. if those factors stay there, then that's going to be a a good outcome for not only the consumers, but for our farmer growers as well. Brett Kelly there, CEO of the Australian Mango Industry Association, speaking to Matt Brand. And yeah, that $14 reference there in that interview, uh, there are in fact some Australian mangoes going into markets in the US, where once you do the conversion, they're paying about $14 a pop for them as well. We're certainly not playing those prices here on Australian shelves at the moment. But uh, just on that Japanese market, so apparently only five types of mangoes were allowed into Japan from Australia, but this change means now all varieties can go. And in terms of how big that market's been in recent years, well, not huge. According to the Department of Ag, in 2021-22 mango season, we sent 12 tonnes of mangoes to Japan. It's 10 minutes to one. Well, today is the day that this year's winners of Haywire are announced with some fantastic stories once again coming through. Haywire, if you haven't heard of it, it's a competition for young people to tell it like it is about living in rural or regional parts of our country. The winners from across Australia converge on Canberra early next year as part of the Haywire Youth Forum. This winning story this year for the Air Peninsula region, it's come from 16-year-old Prapti who lives in Port Lincoln after moving from India. Brooke Nindorf caught up with her about why she wanted to tell her story. I saw the opportunity through a school uh, teacher at Port Lincoln High School and I was really excited about my experience coming to a raw town from uh, Melbourne and living in India before. And I felt like, well... I must 
talk about myself a little bit just because I'm a bit of a narcissist sometimes. <laughs> and so tell us about what your story is about. Uh, so my story, we talk about me living in India and then uh, moving to Melbourne and then coming down to Port Lincoln. So when I was living in India, I lived in Kolkata, which had a population of 15 million. And then I moved to Melbourne and I think it's like one million. And I was like, Melbourne's a really small town. <laughs> and then I moved to Port Lincoln and I was like, uh, I think I've ended up in the desert. <laughs> and obviously Port Lincoln is probably not quite a desert compared to other parts of Australia. <laughs> Definitely. But, but what are some of the biggest differences that you have noticed, I guess, apart from the, the size of the, the population? Uh, the people. Very welcoming. Very lovely. And, oh my God, they're so different from city people, obviously. Grew up in a city, then moved to a city again. And I was like, well, what's going on in Port Lincoln? Why is everyone smiling at me as I walk <laughs> down? Why are people waving? Because you keep your head down, obviously, in the bigger cities. You're like, who's going to kidnap me now? But Port Lincoln, you can be as much as you want to be, really. And it's a great place to discover yourself. And what's brought your family to Port Lincoln? So we're immigrants and we're not quite on the citizenship pathway yet. So when the co when the pandemic happened in Melbourne, it was hard for my parents to find a job. And obviously rural towns were offering jobs and permanent residentship if you come and live there. So we decided we should move to either Queensland or Port Lincoln. And I loved seafood. So they're like, let's go to the seafood capital. Definitely. Well, you come to a good spot for seafood. Have you been eating plenty of seafood here in Port Lincoln? Oh, I just, I had my first lob uh, oysters when I came here and then also my first lobster. I love them. I love them so much. So yeah, I'm very happy. What did you want to, I guess, get across in your story to those that are going to be hearing it? And we'll hear it very shortly on, on the program. What did you want to get across about um, making the, the move to Port Lincoln? I think I'd like people living in cities to listen to my story and realise because when I was living in a city, I thought that rural Australia was really just farmers and I'm sorry, but like dirt people, not really, but yeah. And coming here, it's so different to what we're used to in the cities. It's like the people have opportunities to do a lot of stuff. You can work remotely. You can be a farmer if you want. You can go out into the ocean. You can just uh, take a drive from your house and end up in a lovely campsite, which takes three hours to do living in a city. But over here, it's just a 15-minute drive. And you've slotted into the community really well. And you were just telling me you've just been um, announced as the student leader for, for the Port Lincoln High School next year. Is that right? Yes, I'm very excited about that. Myself and my co-leader, who's also Aboriginal, we've both been assigned as principal student leaders. And I think living in the city, at least in my experience, I wasn't really exposed to other like Aboriginal people, unfortunately. And coming here, I just realised how rich their history was and who they are as the original Australians. So it was great to experience that in a rural town as well. And how did you feel when you heard that you were the winner of, of Haywire for the Air Peninsula? I was really surprised. <laughs> I was like, why me? Out of all these people who have so many better stories than mine, but I'm very happy with the outcome. And what are you looking forward to? As a winner, obviously you get to go to Canberra and meet the other winners from right across the country. What are you looking forward to for, for that week? Uh, I'm very interested in politics as a hobby of mine. So I've been in youth parliament and junior parliament with YMCA. So I got to see Parliament House in Adelaide. I look forward to seeing the national one in Canberra. 
Fantastic. Well, Prapti, thank you very much. And we look forward to hearing how your trip to Canberra goes. And we'll touch base with you when you are over at the Haywire Youth Forum. Let's now have a listen to your winning story. Haywire. Young voices from regional Australia. Prapti, Port Lincoln, South Australia, Bangalore country. In big cities, you keep your head down. I was born in Kolkata, a city of over 15 million people, and the air would make it hard to breathe. It would cling to me, leaving me gasping at times. So when I was 11 and I moved to Melbourne, a city of just over 5 million people, it already felt like I'd moved to a small town. I had to leave my language, my culture and my connections. In 2020, COVID and visa restrictions meant my family moved to Port Lincoln, a coastal town on the Eyre Peninsula. I didn't want to start over again. Would I have the same educational opportunities? Could I survive without a mall or regular public transport? The first six months were hard. My family fractured and mum moved back to India. People were not as accepting of difference. I didn't feel as academically challenged or that I belonged. With time, things changed. I learned how to stay connected with culture, speaking Hindi at home with dad and reading my religious texts. The scent of salt and sea became familiar. For the first time, I could breathe deeply. It felt like I was home. At 14, I started working at my local pharmacy. I'm always greeted with welcoming smiles and customers ready to chat. My teachers saw my potential, gave me opportunities, and encouraged me to join extracurricular groups, such as Junior Parliament. My difference has become something to celebrate. The local Rotary Club invited me to speak at a ceremony celebrating the unveiling of a peace bowl. I proudly spoke in Hindi, sharing my culture and language with Port Lincoln. When I walk down the street now, I keep my head up and I see familiar faces. The neighbours gift me homemade chutney. The secret ingredient? Fresh tomatoes, tucked straight from their backyard vine. It is hard to remember why I like city life so much. You can innovate, grow and learn anywhere. Feeling like you belong and are a part of a community is what matters. I want to go into medicine and become a rural doctor, contribute to the community that has given so much to me. From my house atop a hill, overlooking the town, I watch the sunset. I breathe deep and wait for the stars to come out. abc.net.au forward slash haywire. That is this year's winning haywire story for the Air Peninsula region, region from Prapti from Port Lincoln. Congratulations to all of our winners announced today. And you can read and listen to more winning stories online at abc.net.au forward slash haywire. It's always so great to uh, hear and see the stories of these extraordinary young people taking part in this long-running haywire program. And I hope they have a fantastic time when they all head off to Canberra early next year as part of the Youth Forum that comes with being a haywire winner.
maybe if you didn't get in this year, next year can be your chance. Highly recommend it. Thank you so much for your company today. That's it for me. I'll be back tomorrow with War Country Hour. Stick around. The one o'clock news is on its way. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.